Welcome back to Pop Day of the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, are you excited for the uh, Jan 6 hearing to kick off in primetime? I'm ready to go, man. Do you think that people are watching them like around the world? Like, I was wondering that this morning. Or is it just an us thing? I think it's like probably largely an us thing with like a lot of coverage in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, the there's a kind of morbid, you know, put it this way, like people around the world um, are alarmed not necessarily surprised, you yeah. know, based on my conversations, like that uh, we so completely don't have our shit together, you know? Do you think it's like the end of the newscast with like yakety sax playing and it's like some super <laughs> yeah. cut? Like, let's see what those, <laughs> see those jackasses Yankees in America are, are up yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, probably like a like B block, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, there's the, what's weird about it, here's what's weird about it, Tommy. Actually, I was listening to the the Monday pod. Um, Heard of it. America. And, uh, I was actually thinking about this. Like nobody else outside of this country needs to be persuaded. Like you guys are talking about how like, and rightly about like matters, yeah. how we have to persuade the American people that this matters. You have to persuade them that there was this conspiracy, that it's part of a broader effort to overthrow democracy that is ongoing. And it is very bizarre that if you leave America, like everyone gets that. Like nobody would have to be persuaded of that. They wouldn't need primetime hearings to be persuaded of it. But our own people are so, you know, reprogrammed that, uh, like, it's an impenetrable wall. Yeah. Persuasion-wise. I bet the closer you are to uh, the last coup in your country, the more you care. Also, yeah, I mean, all the polling shows that people just don't want to relitigate the past in this country. It's got to be all forward-looking. And, like, that's kind of the, the hardest part about a hearing about an event a couple of years ago now. It's also why we don't learn from things like the war in Iraq. Yeah, that's a good point. We don't like to learn from the past. No, we don't. Well, thank you for bringing it back to foreign policy because we have a great show. Uh, The Summit of the Americas is right here in Los Angeles. Uh, We're going to talk about the latest from Ukraine. President Biden is officially visiting Saudi Arabia. We'll talk about that and why Jared Kushner could be in a little bit of trouble. We'll talk about how Poland is showing us what a post-Roe versus Wade uh, America could look like. Why Boris Johnson is in trouble. News from China. My Boston Celtics will get a little nod at the end here. Mm -hmm. Lasers. Why not talk about lasers? And then the Platinum Jubilee is finally over. Then, Ben, we got a big historic first here. Blowout guest here. We interviewed Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I mean, it's, you know, it was just a matter of time before uh, a, a world of prime minister uh, made it into the, the world headquarters. Of I, the world. I, re- I can't believe he said the thing about that other thing. <laughs> we haven't re- actually talked to him yet. We re- record the news on Tuesday. We'll record him tomorrow, which is why this episode is out late. But pretty cool to uh, to have had a state in this place. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and it, it's, I was thinking about it. It's pretty remarkable because, like, I remember the first time I was ever in a meeting with Justin Trudeau. He was like the completely fresh new guy that mm-hmm. everybody's excited about at, at all the summits. Like, the, you know, I actually we used to make fun of Obama because like suddenly like people were going over. His old to, news. Yeah, yeah. People were going over to introduce themselves to Trudeau. And they had, <laughs> they had a picture. What really drove Obama nuts is like they had all these pictures. I think it was at the Philippines. Justin Trudeau kind of like the heartthrob. And then Obama was kind of like in the background, like graying hair. Like, how are you? <laughs> now, here we are. Fast forward. Justin Trudeau's coming to the summit. He's been around for a while, yeah. you know. Like, so time passes. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, Obama's got a Netflix deal, Justin. Hey, so you yeah, work on that. Yeah, work on that. Uh, t- oh, by the way, and Edmonton Oilers just lost yesterday. Oh uh, yeah, tough. Canada's not getting that cup. Sorry, Canada. Um, two quick things before we get to the news for the LA friends who are listening right now. Come see Pot Save America live on June 9th. We are downtown at the Ace Theater. It'll be fun. The 1-6 hearings will be happening. There's going to be some news. Come check it out if you want. Also, Ben, Cricket Media is launching its very own 
Coffee Line, finally, we're telling everybody what's going on here, comes out June 21st. Uh, the reason is when you are addicted to something like I am to coffee, you got to become a supplier yourself. Just kidding. Uh, we thought it'd be fun. And a portion of the proceeds uh, go will be donated to Register Her, a nonprofit that works to activate and register millions of women around the country. So go to crooked.com slash coffee for more info. Ben, how's the uh, paperback sales going? I mean, we got more work to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Going pretty good, but like, uh, I'd really love to to give this book uh, after the fall, um, the rise of authoritarians around the world, a, a boost into the summer. You know, get it on the summer reading list. Mm-hmm. Uh, get your friends' good Father's Day gift. Great the fathers in your life who who uh, are interested in uh, what's happened to the world. Um, so yeah, please uh, don't forget to pick it up if you haven't already. Buy Ben's book. Buy Dan's book. It's a great package. Honestly, I, I read Dan's book early. It's great. Um, you know, it's a great, fun, smart uh, tour through how our media and politics has been broken mm-hmm. and what we might do about it. They really are kind of companion pieces, right? Because my book is about these kind of structural issues around the world um, that have led to a decline in democracy. And then Dan really digs into what's happened in this country uh, in our political media environment. So uh, yeah, pick them up together. Right, I mean, it's a great package. It's a summer deal. reading, you know. Yeah, Dan's book, by the way, is uh, battling the big lie. Okay, Ben. So the Summit of the Americas is here in Los Angeles. I love the smell of uh, multilateralism in the morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, some basics: the Summit of the Americas. It's a meeting that happens every three years with the leaders from the hemisphere. The last time the U.S. hosted it here was in 1994. The goal is you bring everybody together. You talk about key issues like trade, immigration. And unfortunately, how isolated the U.S. is when it comes to policy towards Cuba and Venezuela. Um, We don't know yet. The the summit hasn't started yet, so we don't know what the news will be, the so-called deliverables or announcements. A White House official told Politico the topics could be areas like supply chain vulnerabilities, pandemic preparedness, climate, food security, migration. It's a good list. You could also expect a bunch of conversations on the margins that focus on Russia and Ukraine or China generally. The migration piece of this was framed as emphasizing responsibility sharing and economic support. So it sounds like the U.S. will ask countries in Central and, and Southern America to maybe stop migration flows and support in return for some money. You yeah. know, similar to Kamala Harris's vice president's trip earlier this year. So, Ben, um, the press focus has been on you know who's attending, who's not attending. President Biden did not invite the leaders of Cuba, Venezuela, uh, and Nicaragua. Now it looks like the president of Mexico is going through on his threat to boycott and not attend himself. I suspect listeners are well aware at this point that we disagree with the Biden decision not to invite Cuba and Venezuela. But what do you think the actual impact is on a summit like this when, you know, President Lopez Obrador of Mexico no-shows and decides to send his foreign minister instead? I should note that uh, AMLO, as he's called, is supposed to visit the White House next month, I think. Well, I mean, I think like it, it, you know, you've been at these summits where there's like working level business that is, is it's kind of like a good forcing mechanism to take things that you already work on, like immigration flows mm-hmm. and what assistance we're providing, what strings we're attaching to those and things like, right. you know, corruption in Central America, um, yeah, clean energy partnerships, the kind of you know, joint work that is is important and but not, doesn't get a huge profile. But that's kind of like that's what the working level people are always doing. Mm-hmm. And some it's just kind of kind of force them to make a new plan. For yeah, the next, deliver you know, something for the yeah, boss. Yeah, deliver something so. for the boss. 
I think that when you have a, a high-profile distraction like the U.S. not inviting these countries and then a very high-profile person like AMLO um, not coming, like you know, you've, that becomes kind of the story and you don't yeah. get out of that. I think what people have to also realize is that's like a real thing that comes into the room. So I've been to these summits uh, of the Americas and a lot of the speeches that the leaders give you know, in part because they're for domestic audiences yep, as yep. well as people here, they become like complaints about the United States, right? And and did like, Hugo Chavez chase Obama around with a book or a handshake? Hugo Chavez chased him with some book about American imperialism. <laughs> Great, you know, like but but you know you Obama have, probably read it in college, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he took it and like you know I uh, was like well fine like I'll cool. take this book you know cool. Um, that whoever wrote that book is probably on Noam Chomsky email distro. <laughs> yes. Uh, or it may have been actually a Noam Chomsky book for all I remember. But um but yeah, like so I think that y- y- it does matter. Like it does mm-hmm. come in the room, like because people feel the need. You know, I was struck when we had the Sum of the Americas in twenty fifteen, which was the first one that Cuba participated at. Um, you know, like it it took like the air out of that balloon and and people were giving speeches about how great that was. Like, whereas at the previous Summit of the Americas in Colombia, you were there, apart from the fact that there was a Secret Service prostitution scandal. A little, little scandal. Um, the, the, basically, actually, Obama's press conference at the end of the summit with the president of Colombia was all questions about either Cuba mm-hmm. or the, the Secret Service prostitution oh scandal. Oh, my God. It's so, a beautiful venue. That's all I really yeah. remember. <laughs> so, it, you know, beyond the kind of working level stuff, which is, yeah, it's trade and energy and immigration, what we work on in the hemisphere like this is your one chance to kind of convey a message about what is the shared agenda in this region? What kind of political alignment do we have in this region? Um, how do we see big ticket issues like Ukraine um, from the perspective of the Western hemisphere? And yeah, when you have like a distraction, you have people not coming, that that obviously undercuts like the, the primary objective, which is to kind of send this the signal of American U.S. you know engagement in this hemisphere and 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 shared vision, shared approaches to to big issues. Yeah, it's, it sucks to get uh, the Heisman from a, a lefty president down in Mexico. God, I'll never forget when that Secret Service prostitution scandal broke. I don't know if I've ever told this story on the pod, but I was at a dinner with like eight reporters, and the AP reporter. Julie Pace, I believe, was texting me from across the table being like, hey, we got this tip to our main tip line. What do you know? I'm like trying to figure it out. All of a sudden, it's just me and her just like hammering BlackBerry messages back and forth trying to figure this out before the whole thing exploded. And then it made our lives hell for like three weeks. So it's funny, like, you know, I, I actually then was on the receiving end of, I think, you telling me that. And I was with Obama at the time. It was some prep session. And, you know, he always complained that summits would get overtaken by some weird distraction, right? So I was like, oh, man, we got another one of these dumb distractions that's going to, you know, get everybody's attention. He's like, what is that? I'm like, well, it looks like there's like a Secret Service prostitution thing. And and he's like, yeah, I can see why the press would be interested in that. (laughs) Like, like he did did not, uh, like, yeah, he can't really fight that one. He he didn't expect the comms people to clean that one up. Nope, that one is going to get some coverage. Um, Ben, speaking of Latin America, allow me to be on my hobby horse for a second. I did want to flag that it's been about a year, almost exactly a year, since Salvadorian President Nayib Bukele announced that Bitcoin would be legal tender in El Salvador. Uh, Just a quick update. It has not gone great uh, about half the population has tried to download the government-created Bitcoin wallet with limited success. Smaller fraction made it work, usually in an effort to try to get the $30 bonus the government offered them. I guess about 20% of the population uses the wallet today. 
something like 80% of large firms or businesses do not yet accept Bitcoin as payment. That said, Bukele recently released photos of himself examining uh, a mock-up of a, a Bitcoin city yeah. made of all gold. The Bitcoin bond that is supposedly going to fund the aforementioned city has not been released yet. And El Salvador's Bitcoin purchases, buying the dip, that is, uh, are something like $35 million underwater at this point. So other than that, it's going great. Uh, in fairness, it will take a while to adopt a brand new technology or currency. I, I get it. Um, but what did Matt Damon say? That the future belongs to the bold. Well, yeah. the bold, Ben. I just, I underscore this because Bukele is a bad guy who yeah. like going into the summit was being criticized by human rights groups. And it just drives me crazy that the Bitcoin industry was willing to, I don't know, hug him yeah. for to prop up their pet project. Yeah, you don't want that guy to be the face of your you know, governments embracing Bitcoin. I, and I do wonder if he's going to take his time in California to, you know, to kind of oh, yeah. uh, do a crypto swing. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, You're right. That, that's probably why he's coming. Um, I, like, again, listeners to this podcast know how I feel about the Cuba thing. I, I will say that, though, this is another example. Like, because in the hemisphere, these left-right debates, they play into the, the negative stereotypes about the United States, right? So... To us, it's just like, okay, even if you agree that the Cuban policy is dumb, it seems like a small issue. But to them, the U.S. picking and choosing who comes to the summit and, and having this kind of legacy fight with Cuba from the Cold War, it, it drags up all the ghosts of American imperialism. Yes, yes. And by the way, so- Rightly so. Rightly so. So we're talking about that instead of like El Salvador and the fact, you know, like, like th this should be an effort to kind of- just invite the guy, but like, you know, right, spotlight, right. try to talk to other countries about like, maybe it's not the best thing for your countries to be investing in, in Bitcoin. Or the um, cool new lefty populist uh, presidents who've been elected. Yeah, yeah. You got Gabriel Boric down in Chile. Uh, lot, lots of interesting uh, changeover in, in the hemisphere, all of which, as we said, is the left. So there's good things happening. There. I, you know, look, and the, their agenda is the right issue set, like I said. I just think that that finding ways to not kind of have own goals on these um, these hemispheric and ideological and legacy history issues is is important to making those issues you do care about get like the profile you want, you know? Absolutely. So maybe they can make some headway on that this week. I hope so. Me too. Um, but And like, you know, because Latin America doesn't get the attention it merits given how important it is to us directly. You know? Absolutely. It's literally our own hemisphere. Yeah. Uh, another big topic will likely be Russia and Ukraine. So the fighting in, in Eastern Ukraine continues just to be absolutely brutal and defined by this like massive, unrelenting artillery fire. On Sunday, President Zelensky made a visit to the front lines, like actual front lines, uh, life in danger. He met with soldiers and citizens displaced by the fighting. The Ukrainian government officials said that more than 40,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed or injured since the invasion, and 3 million are now living under Russian occupation. The food crisis we've talked about a bunch is growing. The Russians bombed a major Ukrainian grain terminal, uh, and they continue to blockade Ukrainian ports to prevent grain exports. That led the president of the European Council to accuse Russia of being solely responsible for the global food crisis at a UN Security Council meeting. The petulant little whiny fuck Russian ambassador then stormed out of the thing like a child. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, really. Wait yeah, everybody's really sorry to see that yeah. guy go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ukraine says uh, Russia has stolen uh, 500,000 tons of grain from them since the beginning of the invasion. Ben, last week we talked about this hesitancy in the Biden White House to send longer range rocket systems to Ukraine over fears that they could be used to shoot 
into Russia itself, into their territory. I think like a couple hours after we recorded, there were then new reports that the U.S. will go forward with sending those systems, but outfitted with shorter range ammo, and that the Ukrainians agreed not to use them to attack across the border. Uh, a couple other things I saw, there's a piece in the Washington Post a few days back citing people around Putin who say he thinks he can just kind of wait out the sanctions because yeah. oil prices will go up. There's another piece. Uh, I think also in the post, it suggested China was getting annoyed by all of Russia's asks for support. Um, it feels like a little bit of wishful thinking, yeah, but we'll see. Yeah, I never fully believe that. But like, I don't know. It, it, it feels like this conversation we're having right now and the one really we had last week is kind of going to be the status quo for a while. Like horrific war of attrition in the East, constant effort to hold together diplomatic sanctions everywhere else. We'll see who wins the race. Yeah. I mean, I guess the things that stand out to me in that picture you know, I think the decision to kind of get these longer range rockets to the Ukrainians on top of what's been provided is is in part informed by some concern, right, that uh, they've been losing incrementally mm -hmm. some territory in the east and that the Russian vulnerabilities with kind of these extended crazy supply lines and, you know, very forward deployed isolated forces that could be attacked by Ukrainians around Kyiv, that they don't have that problem in the East where they, the front extends back into Russia, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, they have a lot of vulnerabilities. They're losing a lot of manpower and a lot of material and morale is in the toilet. Yeah. Um, but they were making these gains. And so I, I think that the question is, can these kinds of systems that give the Ukrainians the opportunity to, to, to hit the Russians in a way that they haven't been able to yet from a distance... Um, putting less of their people at risk. We don't talk a lot about how many Ukrainian casualties. You know, we talk about civilian massive, casualties, but massive. military casualties yeah. have been massive, according to Zelensky. Up to 100 a day or some yeah, estimates. Just, yeah, just awful. So, th so that I think this is a, a, a rush to see if we can reverse some of that. The Ukrainians will have to learn how to use this stuff, but they've been pretty fast at that. Then the other thing I noticed, right, is Putin in response, you know, he threatened, you know, he's going to hit us and change the front and... You know, Medvedev probably threatened to nuke America <laughs> or something. But what you did see is you saw them hit Kiev. Yeah. Um, and so the Russians bombed Kiev um, and they hadn't done that in a while. They said that they were hitting, you know, some of the supply chains of stuff flowing uh, to the front. But I do think that's another thing to watch is, is, is I don't think the Russians are going to like bomb the United States. But I think they may try to get much more aggressive in hitting material coming across the border or hitting stuff in Kyiv and saying it's uh, yeah. weapons. And, and so that could be the way in which this war uh, continues to be in places beyond just Eastern Ukraine. And I keep waiting for the cyber shoe to drop here. I know. But, you know, uh, we must be doing good work. Honestly, shocking. Yeah. Good for whoever's defending biggest, us. If you ask me the biggest surprise I have about this war, it's that, that there's not a more uh, evident Russian cyber campaign against the United States. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this happened when I was out uh, right before the war started. It is still remarkable to me that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin trotted out to do an event together or whatever, press conference right before the war started and talked about having a no limits relationship, like right before Putin invaded. If I were Xi at this point, I, I would feel a little set up yeah, <laughs> by yeah, that yeah. Uh, comment. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could be that... Um, you know, I, I agree with the analysis that the Chinese probably aren't thrilled with how this has gone down, but I also don't think they give a shit. You know, like I, yeah. they're not sitting there like, I mean, they care about like some of the global economic shocks and uh, the inconvenience of some of these sanctions. But um, I think we make a mistake in presuming that 
that Xi Jinping doesn't fundamentally agree with Putin's idea that you have a sphere of influence and Ukraine's in ours and Taiwan's in yours and that's that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of presidential travel, uh, President Biden has officially decided to visit Saudi Arabia. He's going to go later this month when he's already on the road going to Europe and Israel. Biden during the campaign pledged to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. Uh, but as we know, the war in Ukraine has led to huge spikes in oil prices and the U.S. is basically hoping and explicitly saying that they want the Saudis to increase supply, drive down prices. Um, so far, OPEC is not really playing ball. They announced a small increase in production in July and August. Uh, the U.S. is hoping for more in the fall, but it's not clear that it'll meaningfully bring down prices. On the positive side of the ledger, Ben, the Saudis have extended uh, a U.N.-led truce that has led to some peace in the war in Yemen. Hopefully that will turn into some sort of permanent ceasefire or just cessation of the war. There was a Wall Street Journal report that the Saudis are engaging in serious talks with Israel to increase economic and diplomatic ties. We'll see how long it takes for that to bear fruit. Um, stepping back, but like I fully understand and empathize with the bind President Biden is in here. High gas prices are politically devastating. Uh, and frankly, he ran as like Joe Biden helping the middle class, right? And high gas prices hurt low-income people most. But beyond just like the moral and ethical concerns about working with the Saudis, my issue still remains that I don't trust them. Like I have no faith that MBS will release more oil. I have no faith that this conveniently timed leak about talks with Israel will amount to much. I think MBS wants Trump back. I think he's going to bank this handshake or whatever win in, in the you know, whatever he wants out of this, and then probably tell the Democratic Party to fuck off at the end of the day. I mean, that's my concern here. Yeah, I I, I hate this. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I just want to, like, we happen to be talking about issues that I differ with the administration on. I find a lot that they do yeah. to be very good. Yeah, especially um, Ukraine, right? They've yeah, done an incredible yeah, job managing Ukraine. I, 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 here's, here's what I don't like about it. And, and, and I want to start from the position of, of understanding why you do these things. But I'm going to start from that position by saying, like, that is what I regret. You know, like, I, I, like, we in the Obama administration, we talked about this a lot. One of our, if not our biggest mistake, was going along with the Saudi war in Yemen. You know, providing logistical support for that, even though it's not something we wanted them to do, and the idea that like engaging them could moderate their behavior, and we don't want to have a rupture in this relationship and and all these people lobbying so aggressively from the outside and from Congress at MBS is a reformer and so let's work with him and yeah. and and by the way a lot of the people in the Biden administration shared that regret you know um and, and it it's a reminder that like what may seem like the necessity at the moment you know we have to do something about these gas prices we we just got to resolve this you learn you you live to regret that you know and I think when, if and when there's a photograph of Joe Biden shaking hands with Mohammed Salman in Saudi Arabia, and I'm going to come back to that in a second, like that's not an image that those guys are going to feel good about five years, 10 years from now. There's a lot to unpack about what's wrong with it. I'll try to do this quickly. I mean, we talked about if you're in a war of democracies versus autocracies globally, you're not going to win with Mohammed bin Salman on, on your starting team, no. you know? Um, it just makes us look like hypocrites, you know? By the way, like, what we, like you, you just in front of the whole hemisphere here, said you wouldn't invite three countries because they were not democracies. And then you travel to Saudi Arabia the same month, you know, like it makes the U.S. look yeah. 
full of shit to the world. And we've always had hypocrisy, but the Saudi relationship has always been the beating heart of hypocrisy in American foreign policy. So there's that aspect to it. Then there's like, I see a lot of reporting that's like a triumph of real politique over values. The real politique thing presupposes that the Saudis have all these aligned interests with us. Right. And that's sort of the argument I'm trying to make. It's yeah. Like, okay. Put, a, put aside your fuzzy headed human rights concerns. Like, I just don't think they're going to deliver on the things they say they're going to deliver on. Well, and let's go through the rap sheet of they they opposed the Iran nuclear agreement, mm-hmm. which the Biden administration w- wants to get back into. Right. They've been mucking around in places like Libya and Sudan against America's interest. They've been continuing this war in Yemen. And hopefully, though, we, there's a breakthrough there. That's the best thing that could come of this. But th- th- these are not people that like have like share our interests. So the real politique thing, I don't quite get it. The only issues that you can identify are gas prices and and Abram Accords on gas prices. Look for the Saudis to make a lot of noise and say a lot of things about increasing production and not to follow through. Right. Like that's the pattern with them. Never mind that if you you care about climate change, the optics of continuing to kind of go to the Gulf and and beg people to pump more oil is not kind of counter. Yeah, that. and look, and that's I, I agree with that, and that's where I have sympathy for Biden because like Joe Manchin's yeah, ruined I, all chances of that making that bigger pivot. I have sympathy but. on that. Then the, the Abraham Accords, like let's stop on this for a second, and we've been willing to question that elements of that approach for a while, it is a horrible look if the Abraham Accords just is like the get out of jail free card for any autocrat in the Middle East to do whatever the fuck they want. That's and how that journal story how, read to it, me. I, and I I watched Biden give a, a, a press conference where he was asked, like, why would you go to Saudi Arabia? And he looked clearly uncomfortable. He said, like, ah, I can tell he hates this. He, you can tell he hates he it. Hates He's this. like, I, I decided I haven't decided yet. And but then he said, if I went, it wouldn't be because of oil. It'd be because we're trying to make peace between Israel and the Arabs. And I cringed a bit because you can see why that might work as a justification politically. And, you know, I bet, you know, Saudi Arabia is on its on 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 the the road to the Abraham Accords, whether they're on the the express lane or the slow lane, we'll see. But like Bahrain and the UAE wouldn't have done the Abraham Accords if Saudi didn't sign off on it. Yeah. So they're already in the Abraham Accords, and, basically. And the journal reported that, you know, Saudis, young Saudis, especially under 30, actually now want to rest- create diplomatic ties with yeah, Israel. So I don't know if yeah. that's true, but it's interesting. But I think that, like... It would be the, good. The optic, though, is that the Abraham Accords can can allow you to get away with killing journalists. The Abraham Accords can allow you to get away with being autocrats. The Abraham Accords can allow you to get away with anything you know yeah. and that's not locking up women who just yeah, want to drive that feeds the cynicism that i was just talking about on hypocrisy on human rights that like why does this you know and, and biden and describing use the language that we used to you know frankly make fun of that we're trying to end these wars between the arabs and the israel like the, the saudis are not at war with so i i just don't like it even though i like we did things like this in the administration. I want to be very clear. Like this yeah, is not like we some sold new the thing. Saudis a lot of weapons. I, I just think this is like we we keep learning this lesson again and again. And the last thing I'd say is there is a way to calibrate it. Let's say they do think that they have to somehow repair this. And I, like I said, I don't fully agree with that. But let's say traveling there, like on it's the word. Like why not? Like there was a report that, that that we were prepared to shake hands with them at the G20. That's much different than like this optic of like going to him. Yeah, because you know? it's already being reported as kind of uh, kissing the ring type thing. Well, and that's what it looks like. I've, you know, you've been like you go to Saudi Arabia, like the king, or in this case, crown prince. Like, it's like a, it's a royal court, and you literally are visiting his royal court. And you know, the optic is is it's not just like a bilateral meeting. It's like you are visiting 
the rural here, you know, and, and all the other herb states will be convened, the Gulf states. And the optic is like, we're going essentially to what apologize for, and I know we're not apologizing, but like the optic is essentially, we are going to the extra to mile make amends, yeah. to make amends in this relationship for the guy who killed this journalist. Like yeah. it's just not good. No, no. You know who would like this trip though is uh, Jared Kushner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's having a rough he couple weeks. Though, bad. Well, he, yeah, he might yeah. actually piggyback. Yeah. So January sixth hearings turns out uh, uh, Mark Short, Pence's chief of staff, tried to go to Jared to like chill things out and and try to reduce Trump's rhetoric and attacks on Pence. And Jared told him he was too busy solving Middle East peace, which is just hilarious. But also, Ben, the House Oversight Committee at long last sent a letter to Jared Kushner seeking information about his two billion dollar bribe from the Saudi government. I do not know if or when Jared will respond to this letter, but I do know that it earned Representative Carolyn Maloney of New York my endorsement in her primary against Jerry Nadler, because goddamn, it's about time someone looked into this. So I say two things here. One- Now this is your home turf. Yeah, so like listeners who complain that we uh, agree too much, like. I'm a Nadler guy. Really? Yeah. Did you uh, love it? Ask uh, Tish James, the attorney general of New York, if she was prepared to send peacekeepers to Zabar's. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which hilarious joke. Um, I don't know. This letter is all it took for me. I'm a cheap date then. Yeah, no, I I love Jerry Nadler. I dealt with him a lot on the Iran deal and he supported us on that. Right. Uh, Yeah, I actually have nothing bad to say about Jerry Nadler. So so that's why. Um, um, But no, seriously, like on the, the issue at hand, I'm really glad she's doing it. And this is like such a glaring example of corruption, you know? Yeah. And I just think anything you can do, I don't expect a lot of cooperation for Jared Kushner, especially after DOJ has now set a precedent that apparently you can totally ignore congressional subpoenas. And yeah, that's, that's not good. But like, do whatever you can to get, and, and I'm not saying this for political purposes, like I, we need to know. Oh, I'm like, saying I'm doing it for both. We, I'm shamelessly political. Well, I <laughs> want to do it for that too, but like- I'm a hack, Ben. We we need to know, like, was the entire American foreign policy apparatus being run to set totally. up an investment fund? And, and by the way, what information was exchanged? Was there sensitive information exchanged? Jared Kushner continues to know very sensitive things. From, it, it's good substance. Know. It's yeah. good politics. Also, it just gets reporters to follow the story. And like that in and of itself is worth it, I think. I will say that the Times has been pretty good They've at done a great like, job. like not letting this thing die, but like cashing out to the tune of $2 billion after you ran all of this part of American foreign policy as Saudi-friendly as possible for four years, and you might get back in the White House. Like, Someone should look into it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. 
turning to a different uh, flavor of authoritarian state. Let's talk about Poland. Because Poland has laws on the books that create essentially a total ban on abortion. That's sort of table stakes in this discussion here. But last week, Poland's Minister of Health signed an ordinance expanding the amount of medical data that can be saved about patients to include pregnancies. So advocates are understandably concerned that this pregnancy register, as it's been dubbed by critics, could be used to investigate and prosecute women who have miscarriages or who travel abroad for abortions. The government says, no, 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 don't worry. We're just making these changes in response to like EU recommendations about best practices and data and healthcare, blah, blah, blah. But I do think it's pretty understandable that Polish women would distrust this current government. Uh, and the impact could be that a bunch of them just avoid prenatal care to stay out of the state medical system. So dark stuff. And frankly, the kind of story that I think kind of hits home as we await the Supreme Court's final opinion about abortion rights and kind of ponder like what states could be like in a post-Roe America. No, I think I think that's entirely the case, because if you look at a Poland, what you see is the kind of logical endpoint uh, where uh, abortion, anti-abortion absolutism leads, yeah. right? Uh, Right-wing Christian th- nationalism. Yeah, there's been this kind of methodical effort in Poland to first dismantle the right and then to restrict the access and then to punish for it. And it mirrors what we're seeing in certain American states. So it absolutely is the case, and it bucks the trend, as we said, where more countries are actually moving the direction of abortion rights. I think the other thing it reminds us of awkwardly is that in the context of the Ukraine war, Poland has emerged as this like, heroic ally. They're taking in all these Ukrainian refugees. They're on the front lines. They're supporting morally and financially and weapons, weapons yep. to the Ukrainians. And it, it's kind of let you know, like you know, understandably, all the Western leaders go to Poland because that's where the refugees are and the front line is. Um, and it's kind of obscured the fact that this Polish government has got some creepy far-right nationalist uh, characteristics. The one thing I will say underneath that hood, though, what's been interesting is that the Polish government has broken in a big way from Orban. Mm -hmm. They used to be this kind of alliance of right-wing nationalists uh, on support for Russia. So there's been like this trash talk back and forth. So at least if there's any silver lining, it's like this kind of fracturing of some of the sense of a far-right block. Uh, But but yeah, not not a good story for the women of, or people of Poland. Yeah, when when uh, feeling like you're next on the invasion list uh, hits home like this for Poland, I imagine it'll help them break away from Orban and Putin and anybody else. Exactly that you know the the Orban. I mean you know, um, it it is interesting how much like Orban has emerged as like, the true outlier in mm-hmm. Europe on this stuff. True, yeah. true, true. Um, let's turn to the UK, Ben, because confidence in British. It's low. Because confidence in British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, it's waning. Yeah. So on Monday, uh, 148 conservative MPs voted to give Bojo the boot in a no confidence vote, while 211 said he could stay. Uh, at issue, obviously, was his addiction to partying during the pandemic, and his brazen lying about it. Johnson's team tried to claim victory after the vote. Uh, Johnson himself called it extremely good, positive, conclusive, decisive results that allows him to move <laughs> yeah, on sure. and focus on delivering things for people. Um, technically speaking, he can't face another no-confidence vote for a year, but I think that rule could be tweaked. Regardless, lots of smart people think this is the beginning of the end for Boris Johnson. That's what happened to former prime ministers Theresa May, John Major, Margaret Thatcher. They won no-confidence votes, but just being challenged started started the clock on their political demise. Ben, Boris and his wife also got booed 
while walking into a Thanksgiving service for the Queen during the Platinum Jubilee Festival. Uh, more on that later. He does not seem to be at anything close to firm political ground, but I don't know. Do you, do you care to make any predictions about this uh, shape-shifting creep's future? He is a survivor. I mean, I, first of all, like he scored less on the confidence-building vote than those other people. Yeah, than Theresa May. Th- think, yeah, right? than Theresa yeah. May did or John Major did. And... Um, and so that's like, that's a telling sign that uh, that his days could be numbered as as David Lammy, friend of the pod, tweeted that he's a a dead man walking. <laughs> like, that's, I love the that's intense language. <laughs> that's yeah, a, we say lame duck or something. I was like, yeah, like I sometimes we think we have strident language. <laughs> I like kind of like that from Lammy. Um, but I mean, I, the flip side of that is like, you know, Boris Johnson. Like, I I just. I don't see him resigning. Like, he doesn't seem like the resigning type, you know? Um, no. Oh, He God, seems no. like the hang around. Like, Theresa May was the kind of person who, like, takes the lay of the land and leaves. I think the thing to watch, if people want to watch anything as an additional indicator here, is that they have these periodic kind of local elections or uh, constituency elections in, in right. the UK. If the, the conservative party continues to get their ass handed to them, that might be the thing that tips him over. Right. And they just are like, you got to go. Yeah, he's and, not some visionary in policy. He's just a popular yeah. guy who wins elections. Yeah. Right. And so if, if they're the, if the ship continues to be sinking with him at the helm, um, then then maybe like someone gives him the final shove overboard. But I mean, he'll try to stick it out. I think that the challenge now for labor and for Keir Starmer is to spend the time between now and the gen- next general election. Like, OK, we, we know what our message is against these guys. Like, you know, you got to close the deal with uh, enough of the British people to, to to win that election and win it, hopefully, knock on wood, you know, with, with you know, convincingly. Yeah. Come on, guys. Let's let's win this thing. You're, you're running us into the Yeah. Look, look what we got in Canada. Look what we got in, in New Zealand, Australia. Let's let's, let's get go. let's get let's go. like labor in there. Uh, a couple more things before we get to our interview with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So interesting news out of China on Monday, Ben. The Chinese government announced the end of a year-long investigation into Didi, Dai Dai Global, I don't know how you say it, basically the Uber of China and a couple other tech companies. We talked a while back now, yeah. like year, a couple of years ago, about how President Xi suddenly decided to crack down on tech leaders like uh, the Alibaba founder, Jack Ma, who I guess had just, I don't know, spoke out too much, amassed too much power, whatever. Uh, lots of smart analysts think that this investigation was concluded by uh, the Chinese government because there's all these economic headwinds facing Xi from COVID, from Ukraine, from slowdowns in the tech sector based on them hammering these guys. And it just became a little too much. That in turn led to speculation that maybe Xi is losing his grip on power. With the caveat that I think if Xi were to be losing his grip on power, we in America would probably be like the last ones to know. Is there even a process or a mechanism for him to get pushed out other than a coup? I'm just like trying to understand where this speculation is even really coming from. Not really. I mean, he's he's trying to kind of utilize the organs of the party and including upcoming, you know, party conferences to kind of make himself the permanent you know, supreme leader of China. Um, and so there could be bureaucratic, you know, and party machinations there. I think more more likely is this isn't like a sign that he's literally in danger of losing power, but it is a sign that this kind of trajectory of Xi Jinping consolidating power might have have reached some kind of limit, you Mm -hmm. know, because all of the momentum since Xi Jinping took over has been towards him taking more power. And the tech sector was a big piece of that. It was like, you know what? I don't like that these tech companies have a 
bit of independent power and wealth. Yeah, or data, you know? or and data, right? They 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 have they they have the you know the Chinese are smart, unlike us. They know that the tech companies have the power of nation states, mm-hmm. and and so they, you know, they started putting Chinese Communist Party people on the board, and then they then they started pressuring them to kind of only be listed in China, and then and and what they proved in the early stages of that kind of takeover or or micromanagement, if you will, of their tech sector was that they were willing to lose a lot of evaluation of those companies yeah, yeah. to to take control of them. Now, because of a range of factors, including their insane zero COVID strategy and and other economic vulnerabilities, they can't do they can't prioritize that anymore. And so I do think it's a sign that like, you know, sometimes the iron grip has to loosen a, a little bit, right? And that, that doesn't mean he's gonna lose power, but it does mean that like the laws of gravity do apply. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of the Iron Grip, so June 4th was the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. That, if you folks don't know, was an incident in 1989 when the Chinese military just massacred hundreds of students with machine guns and tanks and um, horrible. Uh, since that time, so the, the Chinese government has basically wiped the incident off the map, yeah. erased it from history. One amazing recent example I saw of this censorship was written up in the Wall Street Journal. So there was an online influencer named the Lipstick King. Uh, he was promoting a brand of ice cream on a live stream last week, I think on June 4th. Uh, I guess he assembled the ice cream and then some cookies into a shape that looked like a tank. And then all of a sudden the stream gets cut. So no idea if it was an accident. If this was on purpose. A lot of young people in China literally don't know about Tiananmen Square and like couldn't have alluded to it. But I do think it shows like just how powerful Chinese censorship is. Fucking ice cream ad gone. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I, you know, for, for my book for after the fall out in paperback, um, I, I talked to a number of, uh, I talked to someone who was at Tiananmen and, and was kind of a student activist there. But then I talked to a, a bunch of younger people who told me that they didn't know about Tiananmen Square until they left. Like these are people who left the country, right? Mm-hmm. One in particular, I quote in book, like that you could grow up, be educated, be well off, be online, and literally have no idea that that happened in 1989. Not not believe a different version of, yeah. of it. You know, not believe that they were rioters. Like literally, it's just erased. Um, and they, 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 you know, it started with like keywords don't lead to certain things, and then it led to just like literally pulling down any content. I even heard of efforts um, that they were trying to buy up some of the like photo catalog of the Tank Man photographs hmm. like you, you know just yeah just so that they wouldn't even be available like, like in other places it'd be or harder yeah. to get you know or something like that um this is the lengths that they've gone to and now what they've done is there used to be tiananmen vigils on uh, in hong kong right and now they like they've obviously outlawed that since they've erased any real legal divide with hong kong and then i saw a bunch of the consulates in hong kong like tweeted like commemorations and they were like pulling down that those tweets like the it's just, it's like 1984 level stuff. Yeah, big time. Um, and by the way, Tiananmen Square, fascinating. If people want to read, like there's some, it, it's it's a great subject to dig into. It's because it, it's a it's a what if of history if that had gone different. Oh, absolutely, way. absolutely. Um, ben, my Boston Celtics coach, Ime Udoku, uh, and the Toronto Raptors GM are making some news. You mentioned, you flagged this article. Yeah, They're yeah. calling out the Nigerian government for withdrawing its basketball teams from international competition and potentially the Olympics. Uh, Udoka played for the Nigerian national team back in the day. He coaches the Celtics now. The broader issue, I guess, to play here is like a leadership struggle at the top of the Nigerian Basketball Federation. I don't know a ton about this, <laughs> yeah. but uh, Udoka is the man 
and I want any excuse to talk about the Celtics as we hopefully destroy Steve Kerr's Warriors in the finals. Yeah, I mean, look, there's actually an interesting you know, backdrop to this is that basketball's been growing a lot on the African continent in terms of, you know, the number of players that have come to the NBA and the NBA's launched an NBA Africa League and these basketball federations, these national basketball federations are pretty central to like the pipeline into the NBA or the development of, of, of African basketball leagues and professional basketball. And both Musai Ajiri, the Raptors GM, uh, and your Boston Celtics coach are Nigerian and have also been involved in this effort yeah. to kind of like globalize the game of basketball. And this just shows you like, I couldn't even really figure out what the issue was, but yeah, like they're two different- they elected two presidents. They elected two presidents and they're fighting out. It just shows you like basic kind of corruption of- like sports and other yeah, things. You know, yeah, like, yeah. like that's what it feels like to me. Like they, the real what, FIFA you, vibes. You guys like. can't get your shit together over like who runs this federation, which probably means you, like who's on the take from who, mm-hmm. such that like you're going to disadvantage your players. And that's why it was cool to see them speaking up because yeah. the people getting screwed in this are the Nigerian players yeah. who want to play at the Olympics and want to play international competitions. And they spoke out at a time when people are really paying attention. Uh, yeah, what they it, so you know, kudos to them. Like that, that was cool should also note that there was this just awful i assume it was a terrorist attack at a church uh in the nigerian town of owo that killed dozens of people um no one has claimed responsibility yet but just truly awful and normally in a region that i think has not dealt with like a bunch of boko haram attacks yeah no that's that's what was you know um to see that kind of violence not i mean you don't like see it anywhere um but this is beyond where boko haram has kind of been uh, you know, menace in the past. So, um, yeah, that, that that bears watching too. Yeah, for sure. A um, couple more things. One, please start drafting your apology note to Marjorie Taylor Greene because the Israeli government has built a laser gun that can shoot stuff out of the sky. Uh, just kidding, MTG's an idiot. Uh, please mock Carly Watt. So the system is called the Iron Beam Ben, which is a nod to the U.S.-funded Iron Dome short-range missile defense system. The Iron Beam shoots super-targeted laser beams at projectiles in the sky, until they burn or burst, it's a lot more cost-effective than shooting super expensive missiles or rockets to knock down these projectiles. Um, it feels very Ronald Reagan Star Wars to me, but they tested it. Apparently, it works. So I don't know lasers. I guess. I mean, we know they won't share it with Ukraine, um, <laughs> but, but but like I, I guess like what it does show is that like and to be serious, like the um, um, well, that it is serious. They're not sharing their their equipment with Ukraine, but mm-hmm. but the. You know, it's important for Israel, obviously, given the threat it's faced from rockets, to invest in these technologies. And it shows you where this is migrating. You know, like uh, the, the next generation of uh, what once was like Patriot batteries is now like lasers, I guess. You know, yeah. Um, warfare is entering the 22nd century. Scary stuff. Yeah. Scary stuff. Finally, Ben, the Platinum Jubilee celebrations honoring Queen Elizabeth II are over. It got a little weird. We yeah. had videos of the Queen having tea with Paddington Bear. They were drumming spoons to the tune of uh, We Will Rock You by Queen, of course. People cheered for a horse-drawn carriage with a hologram of the Queen in it at a parade. There were corgis. There was a controversy about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle showing up. There were viral videos of, like, the royal kids kind of acting like brats. Yeah, uh, the youngest one there. I mean, not the, to, to single out the... Yeah. The, yeah Louis. Uh, or Louis. I don't know their names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Final thoughts? I think on the last show, you were like, the more (laughs) watch this, the weirder it gets. And I was like, every time I turned around, I'm like, what is going on? The deeper we go, the weirder it gets. It was like a Tupac hologram of the queen in a carriage. Yeah, it's like when Wolf Blitzer was doing the hologram thing. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, The the Paddington thing was cool. 
She has a sense of humor. Um, I like Paddington Bear. If she's doing that, she's game. Obviously, the big story is that she didn't show up in most things. She was there at the very beginning and the very end. I guess, like, beyond just the fundamental weirdness of it all. And, yeah, like, the kind of, you know, the formal, complete, like, separation of Harry and Meghan. Because, like, you saw them all in the balcony, like, uh, Charles and Camilla. Right, right, right. And, like, there's just, they're not there, right? It's weird. Um, The thing that struck me is, like, when she didn't go to those events, like, the spotlight was shifting to, like, Charles and William. And I was kind of thinking, like, not sure. I like William. Uh, but I'm just not sure if they're going to have the same, or particularly Charles is going to have the same uh, unifying. I don't know if they're going to be doing the hologram when he's king. Well, I mean, a lot of people like the queen. I that's don't know what I'm if saying. They like the royal family. Yeah, right? that's kind of what I was gently alluding yeah. to. Is like, will Longevity. they be? Will the the this institution have the same support that it has now when it's led by Charles? Like, it's it's an interesting question. It might be tough. Yeah. Might be tough. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we come back you will hear our interview with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We are so thrilled to welcome to the show the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. Welcome to Los Angeles. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here. I, you're here to pitch a show to HBO Max. Is that right? How's it going? <laughs> yeah, no, that's what everyone comes to LA for. No, I'm here for obviously the Summit of the Americas. Got it. And Netflix too. Um, ben, fire away. Yeah, I wanted to start with the Summit of the Americas. Uh, and I should say it's great to see you. Um, we were just talking, first met at a, a summit when I was working in government. Now, now I have a podcast and you're still the prime minister. So different life directions for us. Um, but one of the things I've noticed and we talked about in the podcast is this movement to the left um, across the hemisphere. If you look at elections in Mexico, Peru, Argentina, Chile, uh, you've seen progressive leaders, leftist leaders, younger leaders like Gabriel Boric, who I know you recently met with, get elected, um, which is a a pretty big shift. Uh, And I'm wondering what opportunities does that create for a different kind of agenda in the Americas around issues like inequality and climate change? And when you meet with someone like a Boric, a younger progressive leader, what have you learned that you can kind of transmit about the difficulty of meeting expectations of progressive change versus the reality? Because I've seen he's already running into some trouble in in Chile. So how does this change the conversation around this summit and in the hemisphere? Well, first of all, it's a good thing uh, that there are more progressive, uh, you know, open you know, leftist leaders getting elected around the world. And every country is a little bit different, but uh, these are voices that really matter. And the one thing I talked about a lot with Gabriel when I sat down with him a few days ago, uh, first of all, was you know for all the standing up for rights and including the most vulnerable and you know moving forward on women's rights and, and LGBT and, and doing all those right things, you have to stay focused on the inclusive economic growth. That if, if you're doing all sorts of great progressive things, things, but you're not making sure people uh, are putting food on the table, feel better about uh, the direction of the economy, the direction of their inclusion in economic growth, then it's easy for people to be turned away because they have to be reassured that the plan you have is going to work. And the, the advantage is that progressives are right. You only build a strong economy if 
everyone gets to fulfill their potential, if everyone gets included, if everyone can contribute. And that's where uh, the things that we were focused on in Canada from the beginning and the things that he needs to focus on uh, and things that all of us need to focus on are those things that actually matter. Because when you're getting elected as a progressive, you're reaching out to thoughtful people who have a lot of things going in their life, who yeah. don't live and die by politics, who mm -hmm. aren't going out there marching in the streets. Although, you know, sometimes when you have to get rid of a, a particular right wing, you need to. But mostly these are people who are focused on their families, on their jobs, on their career, on the idea of fighting climate change, but not the minutia of what government is doing. Whereas when you get over to the either the far left or the far right fringe, there's a lot of political motivation to get involved. And what progressives have to do a good job of is meeting people where they are in their lives, yeah. uh, in their daily lives, and talking to them on that level. And that's what that's why we move forward on things like uh, childcare most recently, but you know, you know, family benefits. We lowered taxes on the middle class. We raised them on the wealthiest one percent. Things that actually um, make a tangible difference even for the people who aren't watching politics and feeling good about their team getting elected or not. Yeah. Well, what, one of the challenges that, that we dealt with in the Obama years um, in, in getting that conversation focused on things that matter in people's lives, particularly from a progressive perspective, is so much of the politics in the hemisphere can be trapped in really old ideological debates. And nothing manifests that more than the kind of U.S.-Cuba rivalry, competition, conflict in the hemisphere over the years. And obviously this summit, like some past summits uh, of the Americas, has a bit of a cloud of Cuba not being invited and then therefore some leaders aren't coming, including the leader of Mexico. Um, how, how do you, you know, Canada is in this place where you're very close to the United States, but you know, you have what I would call a, a rational Cuba policy. Um, what do you think of the decision to kind of return to a place of not including a Cuba at this summit um, after, you know, obviously in the later Obama years we did? Um, and, and how do you more broadly move past pretty stale left-right divides in this hemisphere to get to the issues that actually matter in people's lives? I mean, first of all, to be very clear, we continue to stand up strongly on pushing for more human rights in Cuba, more democracy in Cuba. Uh, we were one of the leaders uh, in the Lima group on Venezuela and condemning Maduro's murderous, illegitimate regime uh, there. So uh, we're not that far off from a lot of people's concerns. But uh, our approach, particularly here at the summit, is going to be to meet with and engage with as many people as possible. And really try and move forward beyond those ideological divisions to, you know, how do we actually make life better for people? How do we actually make sure we're responding to the challenges of, of you know, fighting for people's rights, defending their, their opportunities, uh, and bringing them along in the fight against climate change, in the fight against uh, income inequality, in the fight against all the things that we need to do in positive, tangible ways? Shifting gears a little bit, I mean, as you know, the United States is dealing with this horrible epidemic of gun violence and mass shootings recently in schools. You recently announced some new gun safety legislation, including a buyback program for semi-automatic weapons and restrictions on handgun sales, noting, quote, we need only look south of the border to know that if we do not take action firmly and rapidly, it gets worse and worse and more difficult to counter. Um, that was accurate, but hard to read as an American and, you know, just a little depressing. So two-part question, does the lack of gun control in the U.S., 
make your job harder? Is it a security threat to Canadians because weapons are getting trafficked across the border? And two, I mean, obviously, the U.S. and Canada, we have very different political systems. We have a different constitution. But any lessons that you might have for demoralized Americans about how to actually get something done? You know, a couple of things. First of all, over the past you know couple of weeks, including on on uh, your show last week, there's a sense that Canada responded uh, to the shooting in Texas by suddenly turning around and banning guns. Um, but lovely if it were true. But we've been working on this for seven years. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was 17, uh, a long time ago, more than 25 years ago, um, we had the terrible mass shooting of 14 women at Ecole Polytechnique, which was a few blocks from my high school at that point. Uh, and that's where we set on a path where we needed to do it. Now we had lots of setbacks, uh, conservative governments that loosened gun control, but. Uh, since we got elected seven years ago, uh, we've been steadily working on strengthening gun control to you know, a conservative party that is pushing back on us for everything we do. So we have the same kind of dynamic in, in Canada. It's just we've been able to actually advance. And two years ago, we banned uh, all military-style uh, uh, military assault weapons. So AR-15s, the Ruger Mini-14 that was used in, in Polytechnic all those years ago, and a number of guns. And that's mm-hmm. we can keep adding to that list of, of banned assault weapons. And just a few weeks ago, and we've been preparing this legislation for months, um, we moved forward on a total freeze on handguns. So when this legislation passes, and it will pass, I mean, the conservatives are pushing back hard. They filibustered to prevent us from, uh, you used methods to prevent us from debating it last uh, uh, last week as we were supposed to. But we will, we have the votes. We will eventually get it passed, um, hopefully sooner rather than later. And then it'll be illegal to buy, sell, transfer, import handguns anywhere in the country. We're basically freezing the market and, and you know that will make a big difference. But to go to the second part of your question, um, one of the big challenges we have is illegal guns flowing across the border from the U.S. into mm-hmm. Canada. Uh, and our proximity to the U.S. and the, the gun numbers here has always meant that we have more guns than, than perhaps another equivalent country would in Canada. Right. So we've been really cracking down on the border. Last year, we seized uh, more than twice the amount of the previous year of illegal guns smuggled across the border. And there's lots more to do. And... There are debates, and we have a, a, a culture where the difference is guns can be used for hunting or for sport shooting in Canada, and there's lots of gun owners, and they're mostly law-respecting and, and, and law-abiding, but you can't use a gun for self-protection in Canada. That's not a right that you have in the Constitution or anywhere else. If you try and buy a gun and say it's for self-protection, no, you don't get that. You get it for hunting. You can get it for sport shooting. You can take it to the range. Uh, no problem, as long as you go through our rigorous background checks. But there's a difference around the culture. And one of the things that we're yeah. seeing with the debate in the States is you get more and more of the American-style you know, right-to-carry, self-defense arguments filtering up through through the, uh, you know, the, the usual more right-wing communications channels. Yeah. I just want to flag that the prime minister is aware of what we talked about last week I, on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I may or may not have actually listened well to it last week. I'm going to assume yeah. that it's a weekly thing I, for you. I knew more about gonna, BTS listen, now than I did before, yeah. so there you go. I mean, this is 
This is good. You got to be on the right side of BTS. Yeah, you, this is my I, advice I am to definitely going to be on the right side of them. Yeah. There are people who are mad at us for yeah. Joke Love and Made three years ago. They're terrifying. <laughs> anyway, pivot to serious voice. So <laughs> the other thing we're watching closely this week in, in the U.S., aside from the gun debate, is Congress is holding hearings about the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Um, I read some articles from the time that you were watching the events that day in real time. I assume you were as horrified as we were. Um, one of the goals of the Summit of the Americas is to strengthen democracies in the region. How worried were you about the state of democracy in the United States that day? And how worried are you about the future of the U.S. democracy if we don't get our act together? I think it's a larger question than just the U.S., although the U.S. is obviously a, 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 you know, a key concern for all of us as, as you know, one of the most important places for democracy in the world. Um, it, we're seeing a backsliding of democracy everywhere around the world. And, and it has a lot to do with all sorts of different things, um, you know, anxieties around the, the pace at which the world is changing and people are looking towards easy answers or strongman leaders that are sort of reassuring. Uh, and democracy is hard. And it requires, it requires work. It requires tending. Uh, it requires deliberate efforts to not just you know, believe simplistic answers, either from the left or the right, but know that you have to actually work at it and plug away and be almost earnest in how you lead things. And that idea of responsible leadership contrasts directly with um, some of the simplistic button pushing that happens out there in, in you know, accelerated and enhanced by social media tools. Mm -hmm. But the, the challenge has been there a long while. When I got elected in, in 2015, so seven years ago, one of the things that we put forward, and I, I remember saying this a whole bunch of times, um, attack politics, divisive politics, negative, stirring up of hate, hate and fear and differences. The dirty secret is they work. Even back in 2015, they work to get you elected. Sure, yeah. You can do that. You can mobilize and get elected. It's just what we're seeing is that once you've used those methods to get elected, it becomes incredibly hard to govern responsibly for all citizens in bringing people together and getting big things done. Because once you start you know, churning up anger... It just, it just feeds on itself. And if you're not continually throwing fresh raw meat at it, right. um, it, 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 it will get away from you entirely. Uh, and that's, that's where we're seeing uh, in Canada a certain number of, of you know, people who stirred up that starting to, starting to have it sort of turn back against them a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, I want to pull this thread a little bit with you. Uh, and, you know, in, in getting ready for this um, I was thinking about like a meeting that President Obama had with you in 2016 after hmm. uh, the Trump election. It was in Peru. Yeah, yeah. We were there. You and, remember. And, and, um, and he said to you, um, and you were about a year in, you know, hey, look, you know, um, uh, even though Canada, you know, has not, you know, the ca Canadian role in the world stage is not the American role in the world stage. Given the absence of small D democratic leadership um, and, and people who support kind of progressive or inclusive values, um, that he was hoping that you would speak up more um, yeah. uh, on he, those things. It was he, a, he told me to hold the mountain. He top. told you to hold, yeah, hold the high ground, right? Yeah. And um, <laughs> easy task. And, and that was a, yeah, that was, hold the high ground. He said the same thing to Merkel on that trip, and and and. In many ways, like people like you have, and we've seen some incremental progress in some elections, but 
as you say, the overall picture continues to feel like it's moving in the wrong direction. Um, even when there are elections that move in ways that I think are the right way, like here in the U.S., it feels like democracy itself is still in, in worse health. And so drawing on the, the now seven years you've had, you, you've been on the high ground trying to hold it and seeing the, literally the mob try to you know, climb up the high ground um, with pitchforks. Um, what, what is, how do we deal with this? And I'm going to give you just two different potential hypotheses. Like one is that different people just need to win elections in as many places as possible, right? That, that, and th- that maybe there's an argument that there needs to be greater connectivity and solidarity among people who value democracy in different countries supporting each other in the same way that the far right does. And that's kind of an electoral approach of just democracy delivers, win elections. Then the other is deep structural problems that facilitate this. You mentioned social media platforms that are kind of unregulated that allow for the you know, mass scaling up of conspiracy theory and hate. Um, you could talk about all manner of, uh, of other threats to democracy, corruption, money in politics. The Murdoch family. The Murdoch family. Like what, what is... How do we reverse this tide, not just in a single election? Is this a matter of political coordination? Is it a matter of, of structural reform? And it's a small question, but I mean, we might as well um, uh, try to get into it. I think I go back to the root of what democracy is. Democracy is about people choosing the the, the leadership and the future they want. And you know, you can put forward some of the you know the best possible candidates for election or build all the right structures around it, if people themselves don't ask for and demand responsible leadership, they're not going to get it. And and that problem has, yes, it has manifested itself in a lot of angry right-wing misinformation and disinformation online. But it also comes through in, you know, cynicism of otherwise thoughtful, positive people who, um, who get wrapped up in, oh, okay, it's got to be fixed overnight. I mean, like a lot of young people who supported me in 2015 and said, you got to do more on working with indigenous people. You got to do more on fighting climate change. You got to do more on gender equality and fighting racism than this country has ever done. And over the next four years, we did that. We did more on all those things than any Canadian government had ever done. And there's always more to do on those things. And people said, yeah, you didn't really do enough. Uh, and, you know, they looked for other alternatives. So at one point when, and, and we, we had a much reduced uh, uh, presence in, in, in government at that point, um, or we, we lost our majority, went to a minority. Um, and that's, that's fine. That's the way politics has to work. But when people are making the perfect the enemy of the good, uh, when people realize that hard things are hard uh, and you actually have to you know, plug away at it over a longer period of time than perhaps we're trained uh, in our daily lives to be able to expect, making generational tam- change might actually take a generation, not just one election. That expectation that things have to happen really quickly is really hard. And that's where, to get back to one of my first points, making sure that whatever stripe of government you are, you are actually delivering on the things that matter most to people, uh, like you know, steady economic growth, good jobs. You know, through the pandemic, we made decisions that massively invested in small businesses and families. And we've now bounced back to 115% of the jobs that we'd lost in February of 2020 uh, back 
and the U.S. is only at 95%. Uh, and like we actually have really leaned in to try and support people through it because that's where people are going to sit. Right now, inflation is the biggest challenge. And yes, intellectually, people will say, yes, we need more gender equality. We need better fight against climate change. But as we're seeing with gas prices right now, as soon as inflation or gas prices go high, people are like, oh, no, no, we need more oil and gas. Oh, I thought you were an environmentalist. Yeah, but I'm paying huge. I can't, I can't afford to fill my tank anymore. Because yes, but we got to get beyond that. So you have to bring people along where they are. That's why our answer to inflation, for example, is what we fought on in the last election, which was $10 a day childcare right across the country. And that's one of those things that we actually are delivering right now that, that means, yes, uh, better opportunities for kids, uh, lower costs for families, but mostly we're bringing more women into the workforce. We're making sure that people actually have choices between kids and, and not have to make a choice between kids and careers. And that kind of policy, which, yes, is a progressive policy to make sure you're making a, a childcare affordable and conservatives voted, yeah, fought against us in that election. Um, but it's actually fundamentally economic policy. And the more you can tie progressive policies to things that actually matter in people's daily lives, the more you bring them back into a reasonable place in democracy. Yeah. So it's not just about the right leader. It's about creating a culture again where people understand these countries that we love so much, they didn't happen by accident and they don't continue without effort, deliberate, sustained effort to say, no, we are going to make the tough choices and make it better uh, and be patient as we make it better in a steady way. So, so, and I, uh, so I definitely hear that in around, you know, accepting victory, not making the perfect enemy the good and having a politics that can succeed within a democracy. Climate change is an issue that enters into this, right? Um, because to save democracy and to, to, to not have the cynicism you talk about, you need young people to care about politics and to think that politics can lead to outcomes that they care about. And climate change is increasingly a, like a number one issue for younger voters. And I think we all see a reality in which you know, we're not doing enough to deal with climate change. Governments, corporations, you know, everybody uh, needs to be doing more to, to meet this threat. Um, and yet, as you say, you know, there's always usually an electoral reason or a kind of structural reason why there's a ceiling on what can be done, right? You know, uh, it, it, high gas prices become a higher priority. Um, there's, you know, there's a big fossil fuel industry here. There's a big fossil fuel industry in, in Western Canada. What do you say to a young person who's like, that's all well and good, but like, if we don't do more now on this in 20 years, like my future may, may be lost, yeah. you know? Um, well, first of all, that's absolutely true. Uh, we do need to do more. We need to act. But again, we need to bring people along with us uh, because, and that was the big challenge mm -hmm. always around, you know, Canada has known and the Liberal Party, my party in Canada has always known that putting a price on pollution, as all the economists say, is the best way to do things. And there were a couple of different attempts uh, that really didn't work, that weren't electorally palatable. And then we brought in a measure that actually puts a really strong and ever-rising price on pollution to send that signal to businesses and, and producers that they have to uh, upgrade and, and reduce, their, uh, reduce their carbon emissions uh, in a predictable way over the next 10 years. Um, but we actually are returning more money from the carbon price directly to uh, 8 out of 10 average Canadian families. So 
it was a way of doing it, but actually not like many countries do, putting it into you know investments in renewables or this. We did huge amounts of investments in renewables, yeah. but we just needed to put that price signal in for businesses and actually return money to consumers. So if consumers don't change their behaviors, they do better. If they do change their behaviors and upgrade their furnace or whatever, they actually get more money back uh, yeah. at the end of the year. Yeah. So th this shift was actually what allowed us to do something unthinkable in electoral politics around the world. We won two elections on a price on pollution uh, that was that the conservatives continue to fight against. And quite frankly, we're dealing with them, uh, you know, saying right now with high gas prices, you need to slash gas price, you need to take away the price on pollution. I say, you know what? Yes, we have to be there to support families, which we are, but it means we actually have to move faster to get beyond our reliance on fossil fuels, particularly given uh, Russia and and the, the tensions that we're seeing geopolitically with rising gas prices and, and the, the challenges of depending on parts of the world that don't share our values. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Russia and, and frankly, this global fight for democracy that we've been talking about, I mean, back in May, I know you went to Ukraine. Mm. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what you saw? And then it, it seems clear that Putin's play here is to bomb, you know, Eastern Ukraine all day, every day for as long as he possibly can until they relent and basically wait out Western sanctions. And I guess my question is, what argument do you think you can make to Canadians to keep them committed to the cause in, say, six months if gas prices are up, if food prices are up, and this is really hurting them personally? That's a question that a lot of countries are facing right now in Europe, even in the U.S. Canada's not facing it. And one of the big reasons is we have the uh, second largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early uh, 20th century, a wave of Ukrainian immigrants came and basically settled our prairie provinces. Uh, and therefore, there is a deep connection. And Canada, of all the you know, top economies in the world, all the G7, uh, of all the G20, we are the ones there who are most unequivocally in support of Ukraine. And it's a, it's a very useful position to have around yeah. the table. And everyone knows... You know, whether it's whether it's you know, all, all, all our allies, they know, you know Canada. Canada is totally pro-Ukraine, uh, and my relationship with Zelensky, uh, who obviously I got to see when I when I went there just a, a number of weeks ago, um, is based on that trust that he knows. Like there's there's differences of perspective in some European countries who say, oh, you know, we we have to be careful about how the end game plays out, and that's totally legitimate. But the fact that I get to be around that table as well in all those discussions and say yes. But nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. You can't create some sort of deal to end this without bringing Ukraine uh, in as part of it because they have suffered, they have fought, they are, they are dying for it, uh, and they are angry as hell. Yeah. Uh, but they get to have a say in how this resolves. Um, and, and all that together, I mean, the one thing that I am incredibly confident about is um, – Russia's not going to be able to outweigh the sanctions. We have put in these sanctions internationally and we are going to hold them for as long as it takes. And it's not just about support for Ukraine. It's about realizing that here is finally a moment where democracies have decided that the line is there. And Russia crossed that line and we either stand up and fight for democracies and stand for it and, and push back really hard, even if it's or especially if it's at cost to ourselves, because we have to be able to follow up on the conviction that we have that democracies matter, that the rules-based order matters, that, that the UN Charter matters. And that's where collectively we know, as hard as it is, 
we need to stay absolutely steadfast on sanctions and they will stay in place for years if necessary. Uh, and th on the Russia bombing in the Donbass, the most interesting thing about it is before the war, before Russia's invasion, if you had talked to citizens of Kharkiv or Mariupol, they would have said, oh yeah, no, we feel as much Russian as we do Ukrainian right. because it's you know, much, much more Russian speaking. Culture, more yeah. culture. Exactly. Now, like even those most pro-Russian in the past are like, oh my God, we yeah. are such proud Ukrainians, even though I can't speak Ukrainian, but I am a proud Ukrainian. Yeah, right. you know, it, it is totally backfired in terms of that. So no matter how he reduces it to, to, to rubble, which he's in the process of doing right now, which he needs to be held accountable at the International Criminal Court and everything when this is all said and done, um, he will never be able to win over Ukraine the way I think his first thought was. And at the same time, the fact that one of his justifications was, oh no, there's too much NATO on our borders. We need to push back. The fact that he has so failed abjectly because Finland and Sweden are now joining NATO uh, really shows just how much he totally miscalculated, misunderstood both the strength of Ukrainians, but also the strength and ability and resolve of democracies to stand up for themselves. So when I was in Ukraine a few weeks ago, um, I saw people who were exhausted, who were, you know, tired and, and worried about all of their family members who are on the front, their brothers, their husbands, their family that are, you know, fighting and dying, um, but grimly resolved to see this through because the, the, the nightmare scenario for them is there is some sort of peace agreement now. And then three years ago, three years from now, yeah, Russia decides right, to yeah. you know, finish the job that it wasn't able to finish then. And right. the, the world will be distracted with something else. Or you're living in the next version of Bucha under yeah, Russian indeed. command. Indeed. Um, so we're running out of time here. Um, we just wanted to get one last sort of question to you about Canadian exports. One of your greatest exports is comedians. Uh, will Arnett, Sam B, Dan Aykroyd, Jim Carrey, Seth Rogen, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, Norm Macdonald, Leslie Nielsen, Mike Myers, Robin Duke, Wait, David Kilder. Of course, I mean Norm's Norm's yeah. brother is actually uh, Norm's brother is uh, one of uh, our uh, a great uh, CBC reporter, Canadian what? Broadcasting Company reporter. Uh, and so I could have listed a dozen more. Uh, do you have a favorite? We need some clickbait, and uh, more broadly, what is so damn funny up there? Um, <laughs> I think Canadians are you know very naturally self-deprecating. I mean, we live beside a country yeah, filled America, with, we'll <laughs> um, you know, amazing, you know, patriots who thump their chests all the time and Canadians yeah. uh, have learned a certain level of self-deprecation uh, that I think, you, you, you know, these days you see extraordinarily well embodied by uh, someone like Orion Reynolds, for example, sure. who is, uh, who's got just a, a brilliant sense of humor that is very, very Canadian, but translates, you know, very well to uh, Americans. And when he points out that his American gin is now proudly owned by a Canadian, um, you know, we all cheer a little bit and there's, uh, you know, there's something there. I mean, if you look like that, you can say literally anything and people think it's funny though. That, that well, is his Seth advantage. Ro I mean, Seth Rogen That's also, Seth Rogen. what's interesting is you guys pursued what I find to be very rational marijuana legalization policies. Mm -hmm. and, and now coincidentally, Seth Rogen's here in California has followed Canada's so, you know, Seth Rogen has exported more than... He's an entrepreneur. Months, you know, yeah. Well, we, on, on marijuana policy and, and drug policy in general, we follow the science. We saw, follow the facts. We You're follow the expertise. You're following the science, not Seth Rogen. And, and, well, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're, they're different 
perceptions on that. But, you know, <laughs> we just moved forward on uh, a careful project that is decriminalizing uh, harder drugs and opioids because yeah. of the opioid epidemic in, in British Columbia, where we're creating wraparound, you know, justice system and mostly healthcare services and frontline services uh, to try and go at that problem as a health problem, not a justice or criminal problem. But that requires a level of not ideology, but a, a trust in science and a use in, in research and experts to make policy as opposed to, you know, gut instinct. I think we need a little more of that in politics in general. God, I hope we can look at your data and steal that approach yeah. because uh, there's... We're happy to share. I We're Canadian a, after all. I, I did detect a nod to Ryan Reynolds there, though. Yeah, yeah. So I feel I'm, like I'm we... I'm not uh, saying you're, you know... Uh, Ryan is yeah. probably number one. Um, Mr. Prime Minister, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for everything you're doing to... Uh, you know, hold up the liberal Cold the high ground. I'm glad that we're steadily seeing reinforcements. And quite frankly, the work that you guys are doing here is really, really important in, in you know, getting people to think carefully about uh, how, as individuals, being better informed, being thoughtful about how we contribute every day to shaping the world uh, matters. So thank, thank you. you for everything you guys are doing. We just hired Jared Kushner to open a, a Middle East bureau for us, too, <laughs> yeah, so no. we're trying to expand. I told you I wouldn't comment on <laughs> yeah, any yeah, of those yeah, things. Yeah. Thank you again. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again to Prime Minister Trudeau for joining the show. Yeah, and thanks for coming to the uh, cricket. Can't believe that guy yeah. agreed to talk to us. <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, like, uh, like we have a bunch of Canadian. We had a first minister. Yeah, Scotland. We had, we had Obama. We had. Uh, oh yeah, I forgot. That. We, we had a uh, we had a prime minister of Estonia. That's like, right. Uh, That's right. Um, we uh, we like Canada. Love um, Canada. I like Molson's. Maybe the Queen will join. Labots. You ever drink Labots? Uh, I had a Canadian beer two weekends ago called Moose. That was very good. My dad used to drink uh, Moosehead. You know, I think it was different, but I've heard of Moosehead. Yeah, yeah. It's just straight up Moose. Um, <laughs> yeah, <straight laughs> I have a Canadian friend we actually call Moose. Very Canadian. Uh, like what else? Uh, like, the, you know, like uh, hockey. Yeah, um, Gretzky. There used to be a poutine truck downstairs, uh, mean, and I'd eat, I'd eat that sometimes. And, incredible. And I didn't deliver nap. very good content after. I, I was going to say yeah. nap for an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. Okay, see you guys next week. See ya. Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. Home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. <sighs> and it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more.